Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour a conversation with Dr. Mayo Buke about healing generational trauma, illuminating pathways to resilience, and reclaiming personal narratives. We will talk in our second hour today about breaking the cycle with Dr. Mayo Buke. I look forward to that dialogue today. In our third hour, two conversations up first in advance of the New Hampshire primary tomorrow. We'll talk trending politics with our chief national political affairs analyst, uh, Nick Quartelai Corte. Ron DeSantis drops out. Thank God for Jesus. <laughs> Tim Scott endorses Donald Trump. Do Jesus. Nikki Haley is praying for an upset in New Hampshire tomorrow. Not going to happen. So Donald Trump continues his march to becoming Republican Party standard bear for the third consecutive time. Jesus, take the wheel. We'll talk politics with Dr. Nicolai Corte on the top side of our three. On the B side of our three, last Thursday, in advance of the Friday night premiere of his new season of Real Time on HBO, Bill Maher joined us here on this program. So on his Friday night premiere, here's what Bill said to his lead guest, California Governor Gavin Newsom. Well, I always said you make a great case. You know, I saw you debating DeSantis. I said, you know, I'm trying to get this guy to run for president for a long time. <laughs> he looks like he'd be very good at it. What I liked with that also is that you're, you're kind of mean, and we need that. <laughs> uh, you know, when you need to be, not over the top. But I was on... Yeah, not, I appreciate that. I was on KBLA yeah. the other day, yesterday, with my friend Tavis Smiley. I'm an investor yeah. and a supporter of that yeah. station. And I, you know, he said, who do you want for running president? I mentioned, I think you'd be good at the job. Not this year, we know. Um, <laughs> no, I know. Um, <laughs> but he said, uh, I don't think he could win. I don't think he could win. He's too progressive coming from this state and what he's done in this state to win in any uh, southern state, any red state. I disagreed, but uh, now this is a progressive African-American-owned station. and yeah. they. I'm sure they like you, but he doesn't think you can win. What do you say to that? When you, when you, if you could win the, look at the the, the uh, swing states. There's only eight of them. Right. Well, I mean, California is an interesting case study, isn't it? It's the size of 21 state populations combined. Yeah. Uh, Two thirds of state is very deeply red. Uh, we don't need to be lectured on rural uh, politics or border issues. I mean, in so many ways, these are familiar issues, and the issues of the heartland of the United States are very much a part and parcel of the work we're doing in this state. But look, I understand this notion that you're from the coast, you don't understand those things. You can't talk the language, you're not able to communicate, uh, well, and you're not able to actually encourage and find that common No, it's ground. stuff like this. Uh, with, all, with, with all due respect to the governor, with all due respect to the governor, plausible, uh, plausible but not persuasive, uh, creative <laughs> but, but not convincing. Uh, I, I think all that said, I think that was Bill giving me a shout out. I think it was a shout out. Then again, it could have been playful payback for a pretty tough question I put to Bill last week during our conversation about what some regard as, as uh, his becoming way too conservative as he gets older and the way in which some perceive his race politics. In case you missed the rest of my recent conversation with Bill Maher, we'll reprise that for you on the backside today of Hour 3. If HBO can play uh, replay my comments about Gavin Newsom 25 times this week before Bill's new episode on Friday, we can certainly reprise one dialogue with Bill Maher uh, today. How about that? All right, we commence today's show in conversation with the man who has led the National Urban League for two decades now. In May of 2020, in May of 2003, I should say, May of 2003, former New Orleans Mayor Mark Morial took the helm of the historic National Urban League. And 20 years later, he continues using his booming voice and tireless energy to fight for economic justice and equality for black Americans. I am pleased to once again welcome to this program my president, 
Mark Morial. Mr. President, how are you, sir? Hey, Tavis, it's great to be with you, man. Good to hear your voice and good to hear your analysis of politics and current affairs and black America and the nation in which we live. And thank you very much for uh, so many years of friendship and collaboration. Appreciate the chance to be with you. No, man, I appreciate your kind words. And I feel the same way about you uh, to the 10th power. So um, I'm a big fan of Mark Morial. I have been for years since his uh, days as mayor many, many years ago. Let me just start with this right quick and we'll jump ahead. Does it seem like 20, first of all, congratulations on two decades at the helm of the uh, National Urban League. You've done some great stuff. we got a whole hour to talk about that, but just quick here. Does it feel like 20 years to you now, man? No, it doesn't feel like 20 years. It's been rapid fire succession. I mean, I started, uh, you know, 18 months, two years after 9-11 took place. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Bush was president. It was the beginning of the Iraq. Uh, in Afghanistan wars, uh, the the internet was in its embryonic stages. We knew nothing about iPhones, Zoom, video games, and you know, in rapid fire succession, we had Hurricane Katrina, we had the Great Recession, we had the Obama uh, election, we had predatory lending, we had uh, the rise of Trump, and we had uh, you know COVID and another recession. So. Yeah. It's been uh, a roller coaster ride. One thing I tell people, in the right as I joined the National Urban League, we were working on a Voting Rights Extension Act. Mm-hmm. And that was a top priority for the civil rights community in 03, 04, 05. We finally got it done. And when we got it done, we got it done with overwhelming support in both the House and the Senate, including a majority of Republicans in both houses. And a signing ceremony with the Republican President George W. Bush. Today, today, there's only one Republican who's indicated that they would support a voting rights extension, and that's Lisa Murkowski of Maine. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. We're going to pick right up on that notion. <laughs> He's already off and running. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to go. I see now. Uh, I'm going to follow him throughout the hour. It's going to be a fascinating hour. And we will, to his point, move in rapid succession uh, through a number of topics in this hour. We're going to start with that when we come forward. Our guest is the president of the National Urban League. 20 years now, Mark Morial on Tavis Smiley. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580, where climate is king. Climate is king. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. Just getting started with Mark Morial, president of the National Urban League, celebrating 20 years um, of uh, 20 years plus now, uh, being the leader of that grand organization. What a history! Whitney Young and uh, Vernon Jordan and Ron Brown. So many great people have worked at the Urban League down through the years. That's just a starter list. Uh, but I regard some of those persons on that list as friends. Not Whitney Young. I wasn't back. I wasn't around back then. But certainly Vernon Jordan and Ron Brown, uh, dear friends of mine, miss those brothers deeply. But Mark is part of a grand tradition uh, at the Urban League, and he's keeping it moving. Uh, that said, you were just getting warmed up, brother. Uh, let me let me let me pass the mic back to you. What, what I heard you starting to, to set up and to frame for me is the way that how might I put it? Our politics have devolved over your two decades at the Urban League. Take the point and run with it. Yeah, it's 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 a different time. The 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 notion, Tavis, and you know this because you're a student of history, that we make steps forward in the civil rights movement. We made steps forward, followed by a backlash. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rise of George Wallace, Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, Ronald Reagan, 
announcing his candidacy in Philadelphia, Mississippi, you know, one of the cradles of segregation. Uh, the George Floyd moment, uh, where we seem to have an awakening. We seem to have a moment of, uh, of reckoning, a new consciousness around racial justice, now followed by a backlash. The election of a black president that we never could have imagined in, 19, in 2008, followed by Donald Trump and about white nationalists and white supremacists. I mean, mm -hmm. we have seen, we're, you know, I've, I've described it as a roller coaster. And on one hand, it makes you weary. Mm -hmm. On one hand, it frustrates us. On one hand, it, it, it makes us angry and indignant. And that's real. Uh, on the other hand, it reminds us how this fight, this quest, this battle for freedom, for justice, for parity, for inclusion has to continue. It's so hard. And it is extremely difficult. We have to inspire now guys like you and me have had this opportunity. Uh, we started out as young people in this work. Uh, I guess now we're a little bit more seasoned in this work. <laughs> uh, we need this new generation, activists, journalists, civil rights lawyers, elected officials, people in the economic arena, building businesses and, and, and wealth. Uh, people in the education arena to emerge and seize this moment, you know, with us uh, to continue this work and continue this battle. Because I think we're in a long, long battle and a long slog. I think anxiety mm -hmm. coming from a portion of white America about demographic shift is very real. Uh, I think it's animating a lot of politics that we see in America, a lot of the attitudes and hostility and hatred that we see in America. So this work and this battle uh, is very, very difficult. I will tell you, Tavis, that no event had a more catalyzing effect for me than January 6th. Mm. And I, the idea that people of high rank in this would engage in open, not covert, but overt violence to interrupt the transfer of power, to interrupt the flow of a constitutional process, was just something I just never really imagined. Feared? Yeah. Imagined? No. And that moment should remind us that some of these forces in this country are malintended, uh, do not necessarily believe in the constitutional framework, and their quest is just power, raw power. And that is a change from uh, how we, I think, have viewed American politics, American civic affairs over the last 50 years. Yeah. Let me, let me, I was going to ask, <clears throat> there are two or three questions running through my head. Let me, let me, let me ask this, I think, as the lead and we'll jump from mm -hmm. here. It is always fascinating for me, and I'm, I'm being, uh, this is my personal confession on, on national radio right now. Uh, it's always difficult having conversations with you, and I'll tell you why I say that. <laughs> I, I say that because I know you know raw politics, uh, and nobody mm -hmm. can discuss it better than you can, but I'm always respectful of the fact that you run a nonpartisan organization. So before I start asking you a few questions, let me just ask a broad question, which I've never asked you before. We've been friends for 20-plus years, uh, 25 years and counting, but never asked you this question. And that is, how do you balance 
your raw political beliefs. You have been a political. You were mayor of New Orleans. How do you balance your raw politics, which you can, again, do as well as anybody, with running a nonpartisan organization? You know, Vernon Jordan uh, not only told me but wrote extensively about that balance and that tension. Mm -hmm. And it's a balance that operates in, in my soul and in my heart and in my mind. Uh, because I've got to observe the parameters and protocols of a nonpartisan 501c3 organization. But on the other hand, be true to mission. And I am, you know, a political animal mm -hmm. in the sense. And it, and it is not always easy. There are days when I miss the political arena. Mm -hmm. There are days when I feel that the political arena is a place I'd like to spend uh, some of my time. But uh, I've I balanced that by understanding that for the National Urban League and those of us that work in a nonpartisan mission-based space, there's a role for us to play. Brother, it is not easy sometimes because <laughs> uh, the combat, I'm being straight, right? It's not easy because the combat and the battle mm -hmm. uh, and the fitness with which we need uh, in the political arena, I don't always see today. You know, I'm, 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 I mean, I'm a, uh, a son, I'm a son of my father, uh, who uh, was, you know, a legendary elected official and a pioneering civil rights leader. And all of the, I went the other night, Tavis, to uh, Saturday night to an event for Doug Wilder, 93 years old, mm. uh, historic figure. And all throughout the testimony, they talked about courage his conviction, his refusal to ever back up. And it reminded me not only of my father, but of that whole generation of leaders. I mean, you work with Tom Bradley and so many. I mean, they were my role models. Mm -hmm. They brought to the political arena conviction and purpose and mission. And I sometimes wonder if in the elected arena of black politics, that we have some of that, but not enough of that, mm -hmm. right? That uh, politics is not a job or a title. Uh, it has to be an avocation. It has to be mission-oriented, and you have to be purposeful. So for me, there's, there's always a, a, a tension, you know, in my soul. Yeah. I have to observe these protocols, and, and, and it's something that I knew when I became president of the National Urban League that it would change or modify not what I believed in, but sometimes how I could position and speak about things. Nope. That's fair. I just wanted to ask that question because I, I know it, it's, a, it's a serious yeah. balancing act for people like you yeah. who come from the political side to the nonprofit side. So I, 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 I get that. Um, for those who uh, 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 don't know what the name uh, Douglas Wilder means or who that is, it's amazing how time flies, right? Uh, Doug Wilder, yeah. L. Douglas Wilder, Mark ran right past it, was the black governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, Mark is right. Legendary. But I just want to put a final point on that in case you didn't know the name Douglas Wilder. There are a lot of young people tuning in today who don't know these references, Mark. So I want to just make sure, respectfully. And look, let me say, let me say this to sure. you. Douglas Wilder, 83, yeah. and spoke at this event, uh, which was jointly uh, sponsored by Howard Virginia Union the Virginia Commonwealth, and without a note, wow. without a teleprompter. <laughs> he told stories, he was as fluid, and he was the Doug Wilder you all always knew. I mean, you know, Pioneer, look, I, I sat there and I said, boy, when, and someone said, when was he governor? I said, 30 
four years ago, mm-hmm. 1980, <laughs> in the capital, Virginia. Yeah. Okay, go figure, right? Yeah. This is before Obama, before Wes Moore, uh, you know, before Deval Patrick, before Kamala Harris. I mean, this is 34 years ago. What a feat he yeah. pulled off when he got elected. But he always held true to what he believed in and who he was. Yeah, I have a great picture. I have, I have a lot of great photos in my office, uh, uh, one or two featuring you, of course. But one of them is a yeah. picture that I cherish dearly. You mentioned my working for Tom Bradley. I did. Uh, and uh, sadly, many of us went to bed many, many years ago thinking that Tom Bradley had been elected yeah. The first black governor of the oh, state of California. California. Yeah, you remember this? <clears throat> we went to bed literally yeah. thinking that Tom Bradley was the winner. Woke up the next morning, and it still saddens me and just makes my skin crawl every time I think about it or say this. But Tom Bradley missed out on being the governor of California by less than, listen to me, not even, but by less than one vote per precinct in the state of California. Missed becoming governor of this state by less than one vote per precinct. Doug Wilder goes on to pull this off, as uh, Mark says, in, in in the Commonwealth of Virginia. But when Doug Wilder ran, Tom Bradley hosted a fundraising event for him here in L.A. Of course, I was the mayor's aide at the time. I have this great photo standing between Tom Bradley and Doug Wilder. It's one of my oh, treasured wow. photos, man. Standing between the guy who became the black governor and the guy who should have been and almost became the black governor. But it's a great photo uh, that I that I that I treasure deeply. Let me just ask you, you, you mentioned a moment ago that um, January 6th was, as you I think the word you used was catalyzing, perhaps one of the most catalyzing moments of your life. I can see that. But I can also see Katrina. You mentioned George Bush earlier. Again, I'm oh, not yeah, I'm not trying to make you political, but you mentioned Katrina. Yeah. And I want to come back to that. Now, I'm coming back to it for two reasons. One, because. Uh, and I can state this publicly uh, now. Uh, I mentioned a few days ago in answer to some question on this program that this is the 20th year of the Covenant with Black America book. The book that came out yeah. 20 years ago was the first book by a black publisher to ever go to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. For those who were around then, you remember those heady days. The Covenant comes out, literally goes to number one on the New York Times list, stays there for weeks and weeks and weeks, laying out an agenda of what black folk were going to do in the next presidential election. Why did we write that book? We wrote that book because Katrina had happened. On top of what happened in 2000 with the election being stolen, 2001, uh, 9-11 happens. We get we get uh, misled into a, a, a war looking for so-called weapons of mass destruction. It turned out to be a weapon of mass distraction. 2004, Bush gets reelected. Um, 2005, Hurricane Katrina happens. I'm raising this because I was literally just yesterday finalizing my introduction to the 20th anniversary edition of The Covenant, which comes out later this year. Uh, and one of the persons writing an essay in that book is Mark Morial. Mark wrote an essay about economic justice in that book 20 years ago. And so I went back to a few of the people who were around 20 years ago to write these amazing chapters then to ask them where we are 20 years later. And there's some new and younger voices who you read in this 20th anniversary edition of The Covenant coming out later this year, which all of that is is, it leads me to ask a couple of questions. I got two minutes left for Mark. We'll continue when we come forward. What I want you to uh, sink your teeth into initially, though, is looking back on Katrina and how that for black people politically was yeah. a catalyzing moment. Because after we saw people leaving folk to die on rooftops in New Orleans, your hometown, we said never again. And we went to work on that covenant book, man. Travis, I'll tell you, I had I had I I'd been in New York then two years as president of the National Urban League. 
I'd been in New Orleans two days before Katrina hit for a funeral and had gotten out and had helped my mother evacuate to Baton Rouge. I got back to New York, turned on television, saw all the people uh, uh, at the convention center named after my father suffering. And my wife and I literally, we went from screaming, yelling, cussing to crying. And I said, I have to go down there. I have to go down there, right? We still owned our home. Uh, it was the absolute example of failure, incompetence, and insensitivity because all these black people and all these poor people and poor whites, too, were stranded, mm -hmm. you know, in their home in New Orleans and stranded in neighborhoods. And the government, city government dropped the ball, state government dropped the ball, federal government dropped the ball. It was a catalyzing impact. I say this about the covenant. I think, you know, Tavis, you made such a great contribution to the notion that our politics and our advocacy is stronger when we operate off of a plan. Mm -hmm. uh, when we have a thoughtful approach to public policy, whether it's education or economic justice. Uh, and I know your next question is how far have we come? Hold that thought. Hold that thought. I'll let you. I'll let you dig into that without interruption. I promise. When we come forward, uh, uh, how far have we come? Uh, and the Urban League, as you know, uh, does every year its State of Black America report. Uh, they more than anybody, uh, better than anybody, dig annually into the economic conditions of Black America, uh, and they've done that remarkably well for all the years that uh, uh, Mark Morial has been uh, the head of the National Urban League. So I'm going to let him sink his teeth into that. Uh, where we are now economically uh, in Black. America. You are listening, and I'm glad about it, to Mark Morial, head of the Urban League on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Sounds, Sounds different. different. Huh. This, this is Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley in dialogue with the president of the National Urban League, Mark Morial. Uh, he uh, will write uh, a pretty amazing essay uh, in the 20th anniversary edition of The Covenant with Black America. That book will be out later this year. More details on that as we move closer to the pub date. But he and his team write every year, every single year, uh, the annual report uh, called State of Black America, where, wherein they delve into uh, all kinds of issues impacting our community, but specifically and most uh, presciently for me, the issue of economic justice. So that said, Mark Morrell, take it away. Where are we over the past 20 and years will, in our fight for justice economically? Things. We you know, have made some progress in some areas, but generally speaking, Tavis, our progress is stalled. Mm. Uh, we haven't seen on our measuring stick called the Equality Index material shifts in the economic status of black Americans. But I must add that today, in this snapshot moment, the black unemployment rate uh, has declined, and the ratio between the black and white unemployment rate, uh, which has usually been two to one, is now one and a half to one. Whether that's sustainable, whether that is consistent, will be the question on that fundamental issue. However, what we face today, Tavis, is a vociferous, hostile attack on black progress, mm -hmm. characterized as attacks on DE&I, uh, the effort to wipe out minority business set-asides, uh, to thwart, uh, if you will, progress that we've made in the corporate sphere when it comes to inclusion. We have a new attack that threatens to, if you will, stall even the maintenance of the modest progress we've made. This year's State of Black America report 
we'll have a focus on the Civil Rights Act of 64. Mm -hmm. This is an anniversary year, the 60th anniversary year. That act is the modern, if you will, Civil Rights Magna Carta. It set forth uh, the, if you will, rules of anti-employment discrimination that uh, the nation has been tasked to follow. Uh, It's created enforcement activities. We're going to look at that act and ask ourselves how far we have come and what else we need to do. Well, that very act is under attack. Mm -hmm. There are now right-wing commentators saying we should have never passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, when for the most part, even though it's never been aggressively enforced on a consistent basis, uh, you've not had any responsible or even people who claim to be respectable saying that we should not have passed it. These are the times in which we live. So uh, I've seen, like, if you look at the economic status of black people, there's been some modest uh, narrowing of the gap, but it is not what it should be. Over a 20-year period, we should have shaved uh, more, if you will, differential on the home ownership rate. Mm-hmm. Access to capital for our businesses. The path to home ownership is completely uh, fraught with barriers, uh, both systemic uh, and current. So we have a lot of work to do. Uh, and I remind people that uh, we, and this is the analogy I like, we're like a caboose on a train. When a train speeds up, meaning the economy gets better, we may speed up and more people may be working, but the differential in housing, uh, the differentials in business access to capital have not significantly changed. We've seen some changes to the good in the black college matriculation rates, in the black high school graduation rates. We've seen some change there, but we have a new issue. People are going through college, they're finishing college, and they're saddled with debt, which then makes the promise of the economic mainstream of America more difficult to achieve. So it's always this combination of good, bad, and yes, that is ugly. Yeah. Um, Let me come to this point that you've made now about this being an anniversary year, indeed it is, of the Civil Rights Act, 60 years since its passage in 1964, and that is the focus of this year's State of Black America report forthcoming from the National Urban League. What I want to what I want to drive toward, though, is your commentary about what you are spot on, that there are those who are now arguing that we never should have passed it in the first place. We just had a conversation on this program last week about uh, Charlie Kirk, uh, conservative uh, uh, host and founder of Turning Point, who's doing a series of conversations, a series of broadcasts uh, being listened to and being uh, being downloaded by conservatives across the country making that very point. I mean, he's going in. He's not just suggesting that we should never have passed the Civil Rights Act of 64, and, and they're, again, they're, they're unpacking that, but he's attacking Dr. King in the process. So I ask this question, is nothing sacred these days, Mark Morrill? Nothing is sacred, and these folks should not be called conservatives. Their, their political philosophy is not conservatism. Mm-hmm. Their political philosophy is white nationalism, mm-hmm white supremacy, and racism. Uh, And they've hijacked the terminology uh, of conservatism and the philosophy of conservatism to redefine it to something very ugly, 
very old, something that we thought we had gotten past, which is why I say the worst thing we can do in the face of people like him is be silent, mm. not call him out, not discredit what he is saying and sending a message that the vast majority of Americans of all backgrounds, races, are not interested in that kind of an America, an America of yesterday, an America of separation, segregation, and hatred. And uh, I just feel like we cannot give them any oxygen, but we've got to shine a spotlight. Yeah. Uh, transparency and sunlight for haters is good because yeah. it exposes, uh, if you will, the lack of logic uh, and the moral, if you will, fallacy of what they believe. Yeah. The, 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 the sad irony for me is that <clears throat> when Charlie Kirk and these conservatives start uh, now advancing this notion beyond just attacking DE&I, they've been doing that for a while now, it's more than just, you got to watch this, people, it's more than just attacking DE&I. It's more than even starting now to attack Dr. King personally. The person I regard, as you all know, as the greatest American this country's ever produced. That's my assessment. But now it's attacking uh, uh, seminal legislation like the Civil Rights Act, as Mark Morial says a moment ago. So now they are again suggesting that we should never have passed it in the first place. Here's the irony, Mark. If we don't, if we black folk, if we don't get out front and lead the charge and lead the march to pass the Voting Rights Act of 64, I reminded my Latino brothers and sisters when that audio tape came out a year or so ago here in L.A. where I sit, where they were demeaning black people and trying to gain Latino yeah. seats at the expense of black seats that y'all wouldn't have gotten in the door. If black folk hadn't kicked it down first with the Civil Rights Act of 64, and not just Latinos, but everybody else, and I say that not to cast dispersion on anybody else, but to say that without that legislation being passed, none of us people, nobody in, in, in the BIPOC community would be in the game. We're, we have been the cutting edge in terms of perfecting the constitutional framework in this country. That's right. And as Dr. King reminded us many times, Somewhere I read, you know, about the right uh, that all people are created equal. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what is important. We have led this movement. Uh, we have allies in this movement today. But we've got to recognize the sacrifice that uh, we made as a community from right after the Civil War, not only the years of slavery, but on the front lines, but the very essence of the National Urban League, the NAACP, and many of our civic and fraternal organizations, they were created after segregation became the official policy of America. Because we said we have to organize ourselves to both survive and fight back. Mm -hmm. And NUL and NAACP had, uh, you know, white allies at the time, but was fundamentally a movement are energized by, you know, black Americans and black people of that era. Our fraternities, our sororities, our civic associations, our churches and our HBCUs yeah. were the institutional framework through which the fight for equality was formed, birthed, nurtured, and energized. And those institutions were on the front line and the cutting edge in the dark days. You know, yeah. the days from 1896 uh, until 1950 with Brown v. Board, which 70 years uh, we celebrate, and 
uh, Rosa refusing to give up her seat on the bus in Montgomery, which were catalyzing moments, were difficult days. Yeah. When we when we come forward, I want to I want to pick up on on those difficult days, but draw uh, or have you allow you to draw a through line from those difficult days to how might I put it, this slide into authoritarianism that we are experiencing right now. The question is, how do we arrest this slide into authoritarianism, and what role do black people? play in that process. We've always been there to save this democracy from itself. What role do we play now? We'll put that to Mark Moriah when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. You are laying out the history of Mark Moriarty quite nicely. Uh, my question is, from that historical place to where we find ourselves in 2024, sliding into authoritarianism, how do we arrest that? And what role specifically do black people play in that process? Well, Tavis, black America has always been a, one of the consciences of America. Mm-hmm. And we have to continue to play role to make the case of justice and the case of morality. We also have to build and, and, and encourage our allies, uh, not Latinos, whites, Asians, and others, to be part of this coalition of justice and this coalition of fairness. Without it, the country cannot survive. I mean, we cannot have a nation that is diverse uh, and literally says, let's just have an old caste system mm. where some are at the top and others are at tiers below. So we have to continue to be the conscious. We have to continue to advocate. It has to be central to our advocacy uh, in the civil rights community, central to our political uh, advocacy, central to how we uh, raise our children and the value proposition of fairness and justice. But we need our allies. And we need them not to simply be silent partners. They have to be active partners. You know, I believe that within white America today, there are many factions and groups, uh, many, 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 many schools of thought. Uh, and those that harbor hatred, resentment, and racism, uh, they have to be understood as being absolutely morally wrong in their positioning. This battle has not just a political dimension. It has a moral dimension. It's wrong to hate. It's wrong to want to destroy based on race, creed, color, religion, or orientation, yeah. in my own view. And that's Dr. King's lessons to us. His teachings were moral. They were rooted in the Constitution. They were rooted in the Bible. They were rooted in a sense of what was right and just. And I'm inspired by that. agree yeah. with you. Greatest American of all time. And we've got to be inspired by what he taught us uh, and his continuing courage, uh, but his dignity and purpose. Yeah. He reminded us, though, as you well know, that we cannot legislate morality. He taught in a moral framework, yeah. no question, but he made it clear that you can't legislate morality, and that becomes a challenge. In our remaining moments with Mark Morial, president of the National Urban League, I want to close on this note. He mentioned demographics earlier, and here's, I think, the penultimate question for him, certainly my exit question, which is whether or not he believes that there's evidence to suggest that we can, in fact, make multiracial democracy work in America. This is what I would call an experiment in democracy. We ain't perfected it yet. But is there evidence that he sees that suggests that we can, in fact, into the future, 
make multiracial democracy work because all kind of folks are fighting against it, particularly as we move toward that moment where people of color will outnumber our white brothers and sisters. We'll get Mark's take on that when we come forward. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. I've got three minutes left, and I'm giving it all to the president of the National Urban League, Mark Morial. The question is, what are you looking at that suggests to you that we can, in fact, in the months and years ahead, make multiracial democracy work in this country? We have no choice but to work to make multiracial democracy work in this country. Uh, as difficult as it may seem, I think history teaches us that this moral arc does bend towards justice. And justice is the equivalency and a value that must be central to a multiracial democracy. You know, Nelson Mandela, uh, when he emerged from uh, 27 years of incarceration uh, to become the president of South Africa, talked about uh, building South Africa into a multiracial democracy. It is the only way for this nation to go with the reality uh, of the changing demographics. But let's be honest. Today, America has a 25 trillion nearly size economy, the wealthiest nation in the history of humankind. Mm -hmm. There's an abundance of prosperity that can be built and shared by all. So it is, I think, necessary that we all commit and understand a reversal to an America of the past, of a caste system, of a racial caste system is not a sustainable model for the United States of America. How then, I hear your answer and I receive it, how then, though, in this moment, given what we started this conversation with this slide toward authoritarianism, New Hampshire primary tomorrow, Donald Trump marching toward the renomination three times in a row, he's their standard bearer. In this moment, not to make you political, but in this moment, how do you hold on to that hope? How do you sustain your hope, given what you're looking at in real time? I think it's going to be sustained because people at the grassroots level demand. Uh, I don't think this is going to be top down from politicians or leaders, but I think people at the grassroots level have to demand it. And to some extent, uh, it is uh, 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 a grunt and a grind and a step. Uh, you know, in a football analogy, it's like three yards in a cloud of dust, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that will be required in the trench, blocking, pushing. Every single day. I don't see a grand design. I don't see a leader on the horizon who's going to inspire us uh, and unify us, at least not at this moment. Mm -hmm. uh, that may be uh, in the future. But we all have to remember our generation, Tavis, walk through doors that others open. That's right. We have to make sure that we're not saying to our children and children's children, we allow those doors to be closed. Yeah on you in your face yeah i love uh i love our friend jesse jackson the way he puts it we sitting under the shade of trees that we didn't plant <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh he's he right about that uh 20 years now and counting as president of the national urban league and doing it honorably uh doing the righteous work uh i love his work i love his witness and i love him and any chance i have to be in dialogue with him president morial thank you for your time uh, my friend all the thank best you. to you have a appreciate you brother uh, we'll see you soon. See you God soon. Bless. Take care. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.